So welcome to the Next Gen Cast. My name's Nish Manik and I'm a GP in Cambridge. And this is episode 31. And it's an extra special episode because we're collaborating with the wonderful team at Fair Health. So Fair Health are an amazing charity set up by GPs and they offer free resources to help anyone in the NHS develop their knowledge and skills and confidence to work in areas of deprivation and to reduce health inequalities. So this episode is hosted by a dear friend of mine, Dr Rachel Steen, and she's host of the Finding Fair Health podcast, which I really recommend that you check out and we'll link it in the show notes. Rachel's also an invaluable member of the Next Gen GP leadership team, having hosted programmes in her own patch in Sheffield and supported the team out there. Now, in this episode, she interviews Dr. Artie Bansal, and anyone who's attended our incredibly popular webinar recently with the Greener Practice team will be excited for what's in store. And if you missed that, do check it out on our website. Now, Artie's a GP, also in Sheffield, and she founded something called the Greener Practice Network in 2017. And if you haven't heard of them, they're an amazing network of GPs across the country who've all formed groups in their areas to infuse and engage our primary care community in action towards environmentally sustainable healthcare. It's a similar story to Next Gen, really. It started with the seed group of enthusiasts in one area, but it's now grown organically into a social movement, making waves across the country. In this episode, you'll learn why Artie thinks GPs are so important in the climate change movement, exactly what greener practice is and how it evolved, and some of the personal leadership lessons she's learnt on this journey. So a huge thank you to Rachel who produced and edited this podcast and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So hi Artie, really really thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Artie Bansell is a GP in Sheffield and Net Zero Clinical Lead for Humber Coast and Vale ICS and also founder of Greener Practice. What I love about Artie, she's shown how you can start small and collaborate with others. And when you do that, you can really make change. Greener Practice has grown exponentially and is doing incredible things across the country, championing and supporting health professionals with greener and more sustainable healthcare. I couldn't be more happy to have Artie on the podcast because she's a busy lady and quite hard to pin down. So um, Artie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Rachel. That's a really kind and generous introduction. Thank you so much for having me. No problem at all. Well, great. Should we, should we get started? So, Artie, I've just told told everyone a bit about the current roles you're doing at the moment. Do you want to just t- tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I'm still working as a GP in Burn Grieve, which is a, a practice in one of the sort of more deprived, multicultural, multi-ethnic sort of practices in Sheffield. And I've worked with a wonderful team there. And I also am doing a day a week as Net Zero Clinical Lead for Humber and North Yorkshire ICS. So everyone knows that ICS is the new reorganisation of the NHS with the intention that they're going to focus on population health and actually think about how we can manage population health better. And so, yes, I am there to sort of help advise them on how being sustainable actually supports population health and how to integrate those activities together Every ICS now has a green plan. So I'm looking at what we do in primary care, particularly. And I guess the other element of that is that I'm focusing very much on respiratory health in the ICS. So looking at 
what we can do specifically to implement um, greener care um, in, in asthma care particularly. Yeah, and I also am director of green practice, so that's a voluntary role, and that's just a joy, really. That's that's the joy of um, connecting with this wide community of people who are working towards the same goal, really, of making sure that we can enable general practice towards a healthier future for everyone, and that's also more sustainable. And um, Artie, where does this drive for sustainability and greener practice come from in you? Because this is such a kind of, I'd say, a passion for you, isn't it? I think I've always been someone who thinks about what what's the most useful thing that I could be doing at any particular time? What's the most important issue to address? Um, and I think I've always known about the climate crisis. When I say always, I mean for the last 30 years or so. Um, but I didn't really connect it with how it impacts on health and how, um, you know, we can make a difference as professionals until about seven or eight years ago. Um, And so for me, it's not a separate thing to what I am trying to do as a doctor, which is just trying to improve health for whether it be for individual patients or populations. It just feels like this is the most important determinant of health going forwards and so it's the thing that we need to tackle and it's also the most urgent thing that we need to tackle so I guess that's where it comes from really is just that it it needs to be done (laughs) you know like it's something that we need to focus on yeah and nothing better to kind of focus your kind of values and your drive than something that kind of feels so pressing and so urgent um yeah thanks um Artie. and I guess that leads me on to asking you to explain I know you've mentioned it briefly but a little bit more about greener practice and what that is and how it started yeah so greener practice really started I suppose as a as a question in a conversation so I was working more as a citizen really um in in Sheffield sort of trying to work out what we could do as a community to engage the public in understanding what climate change was how it's going to affect us what we what actions we can take and one of my um, GP colleagues who happens to be provost or was provost of the RCGP South Yorkshire North Trent faculty at the time knew that I was involved in this work and invited me to the pub basically to have a you know have a conversation and the question that he asked me was you know Artie what can we do to support our professional community um, to take action on the climate crisis and it it just got me thinking because I realized that there was a bit of a gap so there was a lot of work happening around people who were health professionals advocating at a political level and saying, you know, whether it was MEDACT or Health Declares um, a Climate Emergency or Doctors for XR, there was was work on that scale to try and support people with other levers, you know, political levers and other levers to understand that this this work needs to happen. There was also work happening. There was the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare, you know, they, they were doing work around education. There was nothing specific to primary care. And we're, we're pretty, we're, we're doers in general practice. You know, we're very pragmatic people. And often we'll just sort of, people will sort of say, you know, what can I do? What do I need to know? And what can I do? And I just kind of felt like there really wasn't a lot there to enable people, to engage them and also enable. What, where did they go to, to sort of 
work out what was the problem, um, what were the solutions and what could they do. Um, so that's kind of how Greener Practice started. It was actually, we do need to do something here to support our professional community. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop there so you can ask me another question. Otherwise, I'll just keep talking. <laughs> no, well, yeah, no. Well, what I was kind of hoping you were going to go and go on to say, well, that just sounds amazing, is mm. I guess telling us a little bit about the role of doctors in all of this. I want to know what we can do. Yeah. So, yeah, so when I sort of started trying to answer that question myself, you know, what can we do? I, you know, I've been on a journey about what our role is as doctors you know, in this whole process, I'd say over the last sort of seven years. So I think we've got lots of different roles as doctors in this. The first one is to understand ourselves, how the climate crisis is a health crisis, and how action on the climate crisis is an immediate health benefit to both patients and society. So we need to, we need to have that foundational understanding ourselves. And then we need to connect the dots with all of the other things that we care about. So we need to connect the dots with um, you know, prevention, um, whether that be through health creation or addressing health inequalities or practicing person-centered practice or, um, you know, focusing on social prescribing. All of these things are very much the kind of actions that we need to be taking for sustainable healthcare. And the theory that I have found really useful in understanding and framing sustainable healthcare comes from the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare. And they talk about four principles of sustainable healthcare prevention, patient empowerment, lean systems, which is basically efficient patient pathways and reducing waste, and low carbon alternatives. And if you if you can sort of understand that that's what sustainable healthcare is trying to achieve, you can recognize how it links in with all of our clinical practice. So we, you know, we have, um, we really have an opportunity as, as, as healthcare professionals really to make the case that sustainable healthcare is, is good for everyone anyway, but it's really important that we use this lever because we need to get to net zero to make sure that, we make all of those things happen um, that we've been wanting to do for a long time, such as tackling health inequalities. I also think that we've got this real opportunity to be um, advocates because we are trusted messengers. So, you know, the public does still trust us as doctors to tell the truth. And health is a mainstream concern. So everybody cares about health. Everyone cares about their own health. They care about the health of their families and their communities. And it's a very... Um, you know, it's always high on the um, political agenda, you know, how people see health. So we need to bring sustainability into a health frame. And we're the best people to do that. You know, as doctors, we're the best you know, doctors and other healthcare professionals, we're the best people to sort of explain that the climate crisis is a health crisis, but action on the climate crisis is a huge health opportunity. Yeah, I think I remember feeling really, really surprised actually when I saw the those four kind of pillars of sustainable healthcare and just seeing how many of those are relevant in so many other aspects of health and it's not like we're doing something massively massively new and so much of it overlaps with the health equity agenda as well which is really interesting so things like prevention patient empowerment self-care lean systems all of that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about prevention and whether you have any specific examples of kind of how that could kind of overlap with the greener practice agenda it, there's so many different ways that we can think about prevention. It's interesting. I was talking to a GP colleague who works down south and, and she actually doesn't like the word prevention. She feels like it's too narrow. She prefers the word health creation. 
and I can see that, you know, I can see that um, prevention still maybe sort of is talking about a disease centric understanding of, of what we do, as opposed to a sort of more holistic understanding of health and well-being. So, I mean, I think we're all starting to learn, aren't we, how much humans need humans. You know, we, we are people who thrive in connected communities. So anything that we can do to, to support communities being places that um, are sort of have the resources available for supporting well-being of, of people. I think if we can invest upstream in those kind of activities, you know, so making sure that, for instance, there's plenty of nature for people to actually access. At the moment, we know that massively inequitable access to nature, depending on whether you're living in the most deprived parts of the city or, you know, you're, you're, you're in the poorest neighborhoods um, versus the sort of the richest areas. It's another example of health inequality. We're learning so much more about the health giving benefits of nature, just spending time in nature, let alone, you know, all the health giving benefits of exercise as well. So having that, having the opportunities for people to connect with each other, thinking about how we actually deliver care as well. So this, this could be seen as prevention or this could be seen, sometimes these principles slightly overlap. So this could also be seen as efficient patient pathways and patient empowerment. I've often wondered about our sort of way of working in general practice seems to be very reactive rather than proactive. And, and that's partly the disease-based model that we all work to in, in um, just generally in healthcare. But it's also workload issues. But really, you know, if we could change things so that we focused on those who needed the care most rather than focusing on everyone with the same intervention, regardless of need, and we focused on giving care in a way that, you know, this is what the, the personalized um, mission is all about, is it, depending on what matters to people and actually sort of um, improves their well-being, we could make huge differences. Now, I'll give you a sort of simple example, something I've been thinking about for a couple of years now is could we do group consultations for a lot of our long-term conditions instead of every person having 20 to 30 minutes with a nurse once a year? If we could do group consultations where you had um, people coming in, having peer support with their patients, also having an hour to two hours with healthcare professionals to really explore, you know, an understanding, but also move forwards and, and have a monitoring process within a year. I think the evidence shows that we'll probably do a lot more to improve people's self-management of their condition than, than the way that we organize our care at the moment. So, you know, there are so many ways that we can we can think about moving upstream. We, I mean, I'm a GP, so I'm going to advocate for more money in general practice, but I think the evidence shows that the more upstream you put the funds, the better the bang for your buck, you know, in terms of actually improving health and well-being. So um, these are not necessarily different, like I said, to the things that we would normally do. But I, another way of understanding um, sort of, actions that are better for people and planet is what can we do to reduce the need for healthcare and what can we do to improve the efficiency of healthcare so if you can ask those two questions you're probably going to come up with something that is sustainable yeah just thinking about kind of health at the center of everything generally so putting 
putting health and well-being at the centre of everything. So yeah, thank you. Artie, something else that comes up quite a lot in the health equity discussions that I've had on the Fair Health podcast is around kind of the social determinants of health. And I know that there's can be a lot of discussion as to kind of our role as health professionals in kind of managing some of the social determinants of health. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to understand that health and well-being is, is largely determined outside of healthcare. You know, so it's all of those additional or wider determinants, you know, so housing conditions, education conditions, your your um, your immediate environment, your ability to connect with other people, your access to cheap food, you know, uh, and healthy food. These these things are all massively going to impact on our ability to be healthy. So, you know, we, we need to understand that, I guess. I wonder whether people think about what is our role as doctors in trying to tackle those issues. And some people might say, well, we can't deal with all of those things (laughs) because they're too big and they're too wide. And and sometimes people say that about the environmental issues as well. But I think whether or not you feel you have agency over your impact in anything doesn't mean that you don't understand the the basic theory you know so the basic theory of health and well-being absolutely the evidence backs is is linked into all of these kind of things in terms of how that connects with planetary health I kind of see planetary health a bit like either foundational or overarching above the social determinants of health I actually find the donut model that Kate Raworth talks about where she has the social foundation in the center of the circle so you've got this inner circle where you've got this um the social determinants of health and then you've got an ecological ceiling I I sort of see planetary health as um sort of one step um beyond those immediate social determinants but absolutely interlinked so almost like a spider's web so you've got the person in the middle and then you've got social determinants around them and then you've got another sort of concentric circle around that which feeds into all of those determinants so an an example you know if, if your house is flooded your housing conditions are affecting how your health and well-being but whether or not your house is flooded is impacted on planetary system, you know, so planetary systems not functioning, making it more or less likely that you're going to have extreme uh, weather events, you know, is uh, is how planetary health become links into those social determinants. And I, I think the other way that people describe it, which I think can be really helpful, is, is talking about the planet providing our life support systems. So... The life support systems that enable us to have a stable climate or clean air or to grow food or to have access to fresh water or to have a safe place to live. All of those things are foundationally interlinked with planetary health. So that's where I think um, the health inequalities agenda is so connected to the you know, the climate agenda. And, and often people talk about the climate justice agenda, you know, like, because because they are so linked. It's about looking a little bit wider and saying all of these things are actually massively going to impact on our ability to be healthy. I, I think that's really interesting because I think I've kind of thought about planetary health as a, as a social determinant of health. And I think from what you're saying, it's more than that. I sort of see it as more of, not as a social determinant yeah. of health like on its own like a, a spoke in a bicycle but more of, of as a um something that surrounds the tire 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and I love that. No, I love that analogy. It's brilliant. And I'm picturing it now, so thank you. So Artie, in terms of greener practice, it's come a really long way from that first discussion you had in a pub in Sheffield. And I'm interested to know the process of how it's gone from that initial conversation to where it is now. So initially, you know, I was saying that I, I, um, I sort of started thinking after the question was posed. and I thought, OK, we need a, a sort of a place and a hub for people to go to nationally. What, what we did was we just set up a meeting of a few people that we thought would be interested just from our personal connections in, in doing something about this. And we, and we had a little meeting and, and we gave ourselves a name. So I was working in medical education at the time and we had a medical student in, in this little group of five of us. And she sort of said, let's call ourselves Greener Practice because it's about the journey. And I have to say, I'm so pleased that she suggested that. I think that was a, a wonderful suggestion. And Greener NHS is actually subsequent to Greener Practice, so they clearly thought the same thing too. <laughs> so, yeah, so we had that initial meeting and then we very much decided that initially it was just about finding other people who were interested in this agenda and then having time to think about what we felt we could do to support you know our wider community so it didn't greener practice has never kind of um uh had a very sort of a rigid way of moving forward you know like it's been quite organic um in the way that it's developed very serendipitously i happened to in my academic life be able to go to a meeting on how to conduct meetings at the same time as I was sort of thinking about how to develop greener practice and so very early on when we you know just started meeting around my kitchen table as it were to to talk about coming together and what could we do in our local area we used this thinking time process to to pose questions and to to generate good ideas um, and I think interestingly enough I think that that process has enabled us to develop as a community with certain values which I think have been really really instrumental in moving green practice forward so I was really keen right from the beginning that this should be an inclusive movement you know so it should be something that anybody feels able to be part of regardless of how green they feel they might be in their personal lives you know that that really wasn't wasn't an issue it was just about if you care about this and you want to do something then you're very welcome and it should be a non-judgmental space but it should also be a creative space where we all come together and democratically are able to think our best thoughts and use that collective thinking to come up with really useful approaches so we very much started off in I guess in the first two years working with what we were interested in so as a group you know some of us were interested in medical education some people were interested in active transport some people were interested in greener prescribing and we used um, the fact that we were connected with each other to um, to sort of think about how to do this well who should we connect with and then move forward on action so it started out I guess in three different ways it started out with a local group based in Sheffield who were doing this kind of thinking time to try and support our local community with a, a national presence on Twitter and on the website which was trying to create a hub for all GPs across the country to understand what 
the, how the climate crisis was a health crisis and, and have access to resources to actually do stuff. And then we also have this working with organizations. So very early on, it was actually Honey Smith, who has been a really important key ally for me in this whole process. Um, she sort of said, why don't we ask the RCGP to pass a motion to declare a climate emergency? So we did that very early on in, in Greener Practice. Uh, we also worked with the BMA very early on. We've worked with the LMC. So we've had this other sort of third arm to sort of say, what can we do to collaborate with these larger institutions to actually move this agenda up the chain, really, to get people to understand it? And I guess for the first two years, that's what we were doing. So we we had a national presence, but a, a local group only in, in kind of in South Yorkshire. And then a few other people who got to know about us asked if they could set up their own group. And then in the last two years, that whole process has completely exploded. So we now have, I think, 30 groups from the highlands of Scotland to Cornwall, basically. And they've all grown in this kind of same model. So they all meet regularly, do their own kind of thinking time process for working out what they want to do locally to support the greener agenda. But we also have organically kind of grown to have national thinking groups. So we have national, what we call special interest groups in different areas. So we have like six or seven of these sort of national groups where people can join and think and share ideas. Um, and yeah, so it's been, it's actually been quite incredible to, to look back and see that in, in the last five years, we've gone from an idea to a, a national network. And I think you know, we we probably are now the UK's primary care network on sustainability. So it's been a it's been a wonderful, wonderful um, journey. Wow, Artie, just seeing you, your face light up in the way you talk about that, and I just the power of working with the willing, going where the energy is. That first follower thing. You know, mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about a first follower before, um, where it just takes two or three committed people meeting each other just to get started. And it's just incredible. I um yeah, I'd be really interested just to hear how how do you feel like thinking back about over that? How does that make you feel? Yeah, it makes it makes me feel really um grateful, actually, I'd say. I you're never on your own. <laughs> <laughs> You know, whatever you think, if you if you want to make a difference, you're never on your own. There's always lots and lots of people out there who who want to join in. And the, the thing that I am pleased about is that we we just created a space for that to happen. You know, so a space for people to connect. The other thing that I feel proud of, I suppose, is keeping it inclusive, keeping it as a as a supportive environment and a kind environment so far I think even though we've expanded quite a lot we've managed to keep those values really at the heart of what we do and I I've quite it's it's been reinforced to me time and time and time again through this whole five years how important it is to think with other people you know that actually your best thinking will happen with other people so yeah, I feel I feel really, really happy and pleased and grateful to to have been part of it, really. It is very much about everybody. So I don't want anyone to just associate one person with it. It's never been like that. I don't think I would 
I would have done anything, for instance, you know, you mentioned earlier the first follow, I wouldn't have done anything if I, if I hadn't got a buddy to do it with, and then one buddy and then two buddies and, and, and thinking, you know, between us. And now, you know, it started off maybe as a seed and, and now it's a tree. And it's all of the people who are working with it that is making all of this wonderful stuff happen. So perhaps my contribution was just maybe creating the space, but it's it's really everybody. It's everybody that makes Green Practice what it is. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Thank you, Artie. That's great. I'm interested to note you've mentioned all these now 30 different groups across the country, and yeah, the amazing energy behind this at the moment. And I wondered how do you balance getting other people to where you are versus and I know you're constantly thinking about the next steps what you want to do next that must be really hard how do you do that yeah no that's a live question for us actually at the moment is how do we get people feeling confident actually to talk about these things at a national level and to represent greener practice at a national level I mean one of the things that comes with becoming bigger is you really have to start thinking about governance and quality assurance in a way that you didn't when you were small and you could just kind of see what what happened and you know be very open and and flexible the other thing that's happened obviously over the last few years is that this the conversation has become more mainstream it it was very peripheral mainstream people saw it as a niche interest whereas now they actually see it as a central and a key issue that we we have to act on so you know there's a lot more interest there's a lot more people sort of saying can you can you please talk to us here there and everywhere and um I'm really really keen that you know, we don't see people don't sort of go to particular people necessarily, but recognize the wealth of expertise in the wider community, really, and that everybody gets to the point where they feel that they can, they can talk about these things. We're we're talking at the moment, actually, about how we support that process. And whether that's a buddying process, or whether there's kind of some sort of mentorship process, or whether it's just allowing people to feel that they can do it that they don't they don't need to take permission but also making sure that there are you know the key messages that we 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 believe and our key values are always represented as we get bigger it's it's important that we develop the leadership as you know as we move forwards Oh, Artie, I'm always admiring in some of the the leaders who I am most inspired by are the ones who kind of come back to their values. And I hear that in you so much. And I find that absolutely incredible. And you're constantly thinking about ways in which you encourage and support other people. And I know this has been a bit of a journey for you as well in terms of gaining confidence and finding your voice in all of this. What lessons have you learned along the way, Artie, in doing all of this about yourself? Yeah, so many. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that I've learned is it's people respond to a positive vision. And and that is really, really important that we at the at the center of all of this, we recognize that there's something hopeful that we're trying to achieve here, that, that we're aspiring to at least. And being able to articulate, conceptualize and communicate key concepts and the positive vision is is really important. I think the other thing as well is surrounding yourself with supportive people, but also people who are who are going to be honest with you. We're all going to be figuring things out on this journey, but it's also quite an emotive space. And 
recognizing that and making sure that there are people who can just listen to you and who can allow you to debrief and for you to be that for other people is so crucial I I've really struggled with the whole idea of of leadership I have to say I I think it's because generally when people think of leadership or at least this is how I think of it um instinctively they think of it as a person you know who perhaps is a visionary or you know somebody who is directive or something a little bit above a little bit hierarchical and I I have a instinctive negative reaction to that image so I generally have struggled a little bit with people thinking of me as a as a leader or calling myself a leader I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable with that now that I am aware that um there are other leadership styles (laughs) such as democratic leadership and I think I think there's a real power in that kind of leadership um, where the whole purpose is in in bringing people together to to encourage and enable what you're actually about. So it's not about the individual people. It's about what they're doing. Um, So, yeah, I think I've learned that about myself. I think I've also learned to trust myself a little bit more. Um, I don't know if this is a a female thing or not but I have over the years you know in my 30s um, if anybody was really confident and that they just spoke really confidently or they they seemed like they knew what they were talking about my initial reaction was to believe them <laughs> because of the way that they came across because they didn't sort of doubt themselves it sounds ridiculous saying that now and I kind of sort of accept what they said and then afterwards go away think about it and then think well I'm not I'm not so sure anymore you know I think maybe maybe other people's ideas were just as good or maybe my idea was was actually relevant and I I don't feel like that anymore I think over time I've I, I feel more confident in recognizing that it's not the way that you present things that tells whether or not it's it's the best idea um, and and having a little bit more confidence in recognizing for myself that um, I do know what I'm talking about <laughs> some of the time and feeling able to take a step back, acknowledge and appreciate other people's ideas, but not necessarily doubt my own, you know, it, as, as my first response. That's so interesting, Artie. So much of what you've said about leadership aligns to what I have felt previously as well. And I find it really interesting. We started this conversation about kind of what you've been doing. And I think it's so interesting that actually you've not set out to be a leader. You've set out to do something. Yeah. That's like you're definitely an inspiring leader (laughs) from my point of view. Anyway, I think a lot of others too would say the same. So, Artie, to finish, I wanted to ask you a few quickfire questions combining both the next gen cast and finding fair health formats. So, firstly, I wonder whether you can tell us about a leader you most admire and why. I'm going to say Mahatma Gandhi. Um, and that's because I think I really love that he was experimenting and learning all through his life. So he, he very clearly sort of said, my life has been an experiment with the truth. And I guess the other thing was that he was very values-based as well. He was constantly thinking about what, what is the most important thing here? What, what's the thing that we're actually really aspiring to or, or trying to achieve? And always made sure that the actions aligned with the values. So, yeah, 
So I'm going to I'm going to say Mahatma Gandhi. And um, some top pieces of advice to a new leader. Yeah, I think that what I've said maybe in my previous answer, which is, um, um, you know, make sure you surround yourself with trusted colleagues who you can talk to, um, both for emotional support, but also for feedback. So I'd say that would be my my top piece of advice. Thanks, Artie. And then one book or resource you'd recommend for someone interested in tackling health equity or even the sustainability agenda, because actually I think we've realised today that a big crossover isn't there. So I've recommended this book to a few friends, actually. I would really recommend Active Hope. And particularly in terms of tackling the climate crisis, it's really hard not to get despondent when the scale of action really doesn't match what's needed and to lose hope. Um, I mean, this book has literally saved my life on a couple of occasions, or at least saved my mental health. So I really recommend it because it's, again, it's about values. It's about being able to um, put your your drive and your energy and your actions into what you hope for, what is worth hoping for, and not worrying so much about whether or not it's likely to happen. So that doesn't mean not being pragmatic. You, you can still be pragmatic, but you're driven by, um, by the actual vision that you think is worth contributing to rather than your hope being affected by whether or not you think it's probable or not so yeah I definitely recommend that book Active Hope. Thanks Artie that book sounds great so our final question is the genie question so a genie appears to you and you have one wish to sort out this whole let's call it sustainability and equity crisis what would you wish for? Yeah, that is such a huge question. And we haven't even talked about all of the massive co-benefits to health of like reducing air pollution and (laughs) reducing fuel poverty and all of those kind of things. But just at this moment with the cost of living crisis that we have, I would really love to see if we could put the economy on a an actual green new deal pathway, a green recovery agenda that focused its interventions on those who need it the most so making sure that all of our actions tackle health inequalities first so for example you know insulating homes for the the least well-off in society so that that's improving their health and reducing the costs and things like that as well I'd, I like all of those kind of things to to be prioritized yes love it thanks Artie let's remain hopeful as you say we've not covered a huge amount of stuff and yeah we could have talked for much longer so yeah perhaps we'll have to get you back on the podcast (laughs) thank you so much Artie and take care thanks for having me so that was Dr Artie Bansal being interviewed by Rachel Steen who as I said is host of the Finding Fair Health podcast thank you Rachel for that collaboration and I highly recommend that you check out her podcast. The link is in the show notes. There's some really inspiring episodes if you're interested in leaders who are tackling health inequalities. I particularly like the episodes with Bazana Hussein, Nigel Hewitt, and of course, Victor Adebowale. Do check those out. So we'll be back with another Next Gen cast very soon. But in the meantime, if you want to apply to one of our programmes, do check out our website, our Twitter feed, and our monthly bulletin. The links are in the show notes. And we'll see you next time for the next Gen Cast. <laughs>